0: All right. Well, how many of you, when asked the question, uh, if you've broken a bone, how many people have actually broken a bone? You've been in a cast. Yeah, you've faced an injury. Yeah, I, I have as well. Uh, you know, it's a pretty normal thing when we see someone in a cast or when we see somebody walking on crutches. The first question that we are most likely to ask is, what happened, right? I mean, you see an injury and you're sort of like, I wonder, I wonder what happened. I wonder how, you know, they were injured. And we're curious about it. In fact, last weekend I was in the uh, volunteer lounge and I was chatting with Brian Schroeder. Some of you may know him. He's on crutches right now. And I was asking him, uh, you know, Brian, you know, what what really happened? Like, how did you injure yourself? And so he began to tell me that over a Christmas break, he and his family had the privilege of going out west and they went for a, a week of skiing and had a really cool experience. And he said, you know, on the last day of our trip, we had this awesome experience. We got to go up in a helicopter and we got to come down on like fresh powder, you know, and we got to experience, you know, like skiing on runs that hadn't been skied on and snowboarding on runs that hadn't been boarded on. And so he's like, it was amazing. It was beautiful. It was incredible. And he goes, you know, he goes, of course, it was the very last run of our very last day. So you see where this is headed, right? He goes, we we're coming down, and I realized that, you know, there was a patch of ice in front of me. And so I, I had to figure out, and I had to navigate, like, what do I do? Because this patch of ice could really take me out. And so he's like, I, I try to think through, like, maybe what I need to just do is just, like, create my own fall. You know, like, if I just sort of, like, make myself fall, maybe this won't be nearly as bad. And so he said, what I did was, you know, I, I sort of pushed my body over. The problem is, is my legs stayed upright in the boot, And so while my body went over, I just felt this pop. And that's exactly what I did when I heard him tell the story, you know. And you just get this physical feeling like, oh, that's so painful. And and he ended up tearing his ACL, and it was just so unbelievably painful. And he began to explain how painful it was to us. And, uh, you know, he actually has to have surgery on it. He's doing really well. But, you know, we were talking in the back room, and it's amazing to me, whenever somebody starts to talk, about a physical injury, everybody else starts to chime in on their physical injuries, don't they? You know, somebody tells a story like, well, this happened to me, and then everybody else is like, oh, well, let me tell you this time when this happened to me, or, or when this happened to me, and we have this tendency to almost want to, like, one-up one another with the most amount of pain we've ever been in, right? And it's so interesting how quick, how quick we are to want to wanna talk about our physical pain And and we almost have like a tinge of of heroic banter about it, don't we? But when it comes to our relational pain, when it comes to our relational pain that comes from conflicts, we tend to take a very different approach, don't we? And I know that uh, in a room this size, um, every single one of us uh, at some point has either caused hurt or you've been hurt by another person, Potentially, you are currently in a difficult relationship where there, is, where there is present hurt. Or in the future, you will be in a relationship where there is conflict, where there is pain. And the reason that I know this is because Jesus says very clearly in the Scriptures, in this world, you will have trouble. He spells it out very clearly. In this world, you will have trouble. Put it on your list. It's coming, you know. In this world, you will have trouble. And so often, the trouble that we experience is in our relationships with one another. And oftentimes, it happens in the form of conflict. And what we're going to do today is we're actually we're going to study a passage with one another that, that sort of gives us a game plan as to what we should do when we find ourselves in conflict. And conflict, it really comes in lots of different forms, right? Uh, There's lots of different types of conflicts that we find ourselves in. And so I wanted to to give us a bit of terminology, a a bit of understanding around the different kinds of conflicts that we have. So I brought along um, some, some understanding here, okay? So there are tall conflicts that we deal with in our world, right? Okay? There are grande conflicts, and there are venti-sized conflicts, okay? St. Starbucks is here at church tonight. Uh, tall conflicts, okay? Tall conflicts, oftentimes, these are the kinds of quick misunderstandings that we have. You may have had one on your way to church tonight. Uh, you were driving with somebody and they said, no, you're supposed to go right. And you're like, no, I know, we're supposed to go left. And they're like, no, you're supposed to go right. You know, And, and you get into this little spat. You get into this little quick conflict. Maybe it was over where you should park or where you should go to dinner. And, and usually these types of little tall conflicts, they start out quite mild, don't they? And oftentimes, they're misunderstandings. Sometimes they can happen through um, feeling insulted. Maybe somebody says something and you didn't really understand how it is that they said that or what it was that they meant, and, and, and you take that and it feels like um, you know, it, was a, it was a bit of a, a misunderstanding. Oftentimes it can happen through your opinion not being valued. Sometimes it happens at work and, uh, you know, one person says this and another person says that and and a misunderstanding erupts, right? And these are tall-sized conflicts in our world. And if you go up the, uh, the conflict scale, the next size obviously is grande conflicts. And when you have this kind of conflict, there is a very real division. And usually both parties, they, they know that they're in the middle of a conflict. They know that conflict is going on. And, and oftentimes, uh, it's, it's beyond just a difference of opinion. Maybe there's been a word um, that was said, and, and it was said in the heat of an argument, and it ended up causing some significant pain. Maybe a wound was created. Oftentimes, there's a betrayal or a form of trust is broken. And these grande-sized conflicts, they can lead to deep devastation and pain in our life. And then there are those kinds of conflicts that are the venti-sized conflicts. And oftentimes, these types of conflicts, they literally feel like they are an ocean, that they are so big and they are so vast Oftentimes, if if you have this kind of conflict with another person, you almost put it into a category of, this is a relationship that literally is just, it's beyond repair. You just sort of look at it in such a way where you just think, like, this is never going to be healed. This relationship, this conflict has put us in a situation and we are beyond repair. And these kinds of conflicts often come from an affair a really painful breakup, maybe some emotional pain. Maybe you had a parent that just sort of checked out when you were young. Maybe there's a family member. Um, there's some sort of family um, just tension. And there are literally members of your family that have not spoken to one another for years. And there's just a big ocean in between two people. It can come from a rejection And venti-sized conflicts have a significant, significant stronghold in our hearts and in our minds. And they end up having great power over our relationships. And you've probably had conflicts of varying degrees throughout your life. And one of the most important questions that needs to be asked when it comes to the kinds of conflicts that we have with one another is when you are in a conflict with another person, What do you most want to do to the person on the other end of your conflict? What do you most want to do to the other person on the other end of your conflict? It's a pretty honest and important question, isn't it? Because when you've been hurt by someone else, when you are in a conflict, what is your most natural desire of what you want to do? to that person. Now, some of you are hoping that right now I'm not going to ask you to turn and speak to the person next to you because you don't want to talk about those kinds of things here in church, right? We have all different kinds of tendencies when it comes to conflict. There are some that have the tendency to retreat. When you get into conflict, you retreat. You choose the silent treatment. You pull back. You withdraw And you send subtle messages to the person on the other end of the conflict. and This is the person that retreats. Others of us, our tendency is to attack. The exact opposite. And you become like a defense lawyer. And you verbally, you just sort of build a case against your opponent. At times, maybe you even, you belittle them and you try to pull them down a few notches. And your mode is to be very defensive in conflict. So there there are those that retreat, there are those that attack, and then there are those that, that choose to suppress. And those that choose to suppress, they oftentimes have such an allergic reaction to conflict that they literally just want to sort of push it away or push it down in the hopes that the conflict will go away. And the person that suppresses oftentimes will just sort of wear a mask of niceness. But often what happens is, is that person that suppresses, they build a story and they build a grudge within themselves. And oftentimes they can hold it for a significant amount of time. And there's all different ways that we choose to engage when it comes to conflict. And, you know, I asked Jarrett uh, if I could share our tendency in our marriage and how we tend to do conflict with one another. See, for Jarrett, uh, he tends to be in the suppress camp. Um, that's, that's sort of his mode when it comes to conflict, to suppress. Now, if I had to choose just one of the tendencies, um, I have been known to be skilled in all three. Um, <laughs> but if I were to choose to just uh, pick one of these, I'm probably strongest in the attack camp. Um, And so you can only imagine what a wonderful combination of fireworks we create in our marriage. Now the good thing is we have never had a conflict, which is just amazing. (laughs) Um, You know, we've been married for 15 years, and so obviously we've had many, many conflicts. Um, And we have created a dance over those 15 years with one another. Um, and, And it has to do with Our tendencies in conflict, Um, and so for Jarrett, what he does is he tends to sort of to pull away and to suppress a bit. And I do the exact opposite. I start saying like, "Babe, you know what's wrong? Are you okay? You seem to be really quiet. Like, is something going on? Are you mad at me, honey? Are you suppressing something right now?" (laughs) That has never ever been helpful uh, in a conflict. and I go in and I start working when we have conflicts. I literally just sort of like, I, I put my combat gear on and it's literally like, all right, I'm going in, I'm solving the conflict. And Jarrett just, he has more of a style of wanting it to take care of itself. I mean, I have been known in, in some of our conflicts to be quite combative, if I'm being very honest. I have been known to have unbelievable closing arguments that are literally Oscar-worthy. I mean, they are so incredible. And early on in our marriage, we started to realize um, that we did not know how to fight fair. We knew how to fight. We just didn't know how to fight fair. And our lack of health and knowing how to handle our different and unique tendencies with conflict, it oftentimes put us in really difficult situations. And so we realized that we needed to invite some others into our marriage to help us figure out how to take our unique tendencies and to figure out how to have a healthy resolve in our relationship. And so we sought out different mentoring couples uh, throughout our marriage, We sought out different friends that we invited in to um, intimate and uh, important places and and difficult spots in our marriage. Both of us, uh, at different times in our life, have gone to see private counselors. We've gone to see marriage counselors. And the return of that investment over the last 15 years has been so significant in our marriage. Now, we still fight. And we still return to broken tendencies on how to handle conflict. But one of the things that has been so encouraging to us over the last 15 years is how, when that happens, both of us are much quicker to see the light. We're both much quicker to speak loving truth to one another. And we're both much quicker to choose to trust one another and to honor God in how we move towards restoration. But there has to be a desire to want to do conflict God's way. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Um, We're going to look at how do we do it God's way. You know, when you think about your different tendencies um, towards conflict, have you ever wondered where you learned that tendency from? Have you ever wondered, like, where you learned how to retreat or how to attack or how to suppress? You see, whatever your human tendency is when it comes to conflict, most likely is what you observed in your family growing up. You see, what we observe, we often absorb. What we observe from, from our family and, and how they do conflict is what we often absorb. And either you watched your family practice the exact same response that you have to conflict today, or you had such an aversion to how your family handled conflict growing up, that you literally said, I am going to go in another direction. I I don't like how my family does conflict with one another, and so I'm going to go on a different path. And so that's most likely where you learned your tendency when it comes to conflict. Whatever your human tendency is when you face conflict, and you will face conflict, the scriptures are very clear on what to do. Ephesians 4.26 says, In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. You see, Jesus even acknowledges that when you are in conflict, that you are going to be angry. Conflict causes us to be angry, doesn't it? And anger, in and of itself, is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. It's what we do with anger that often leads us to sin. Jesus says it so clearly, in your anger, do not sin. And so we're going to walk through a biblical model that Jesus spells out quite clearly of when we face that anger, when we face that conflict, how do we walk through it in such a way that we do not sin. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab your Bible in front of you I want you to turn to Matthew 18. It's in the second half of the Bible. It's found in the Gospels. It's the first book in the Gospels. And we're going to study this passage together for the next few moments. Matthew 18 in the Blue Bibles. It's found on page 907. And we're going to start at verse 15. The passage says this. If a brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault. Read this next phrase with me. Just between the two of you. Okay, you can do a lot better than that. If a brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. So the scriptures are really clear here, aren't they? It says, if there is sin, if there is a conflict with someone, what is the first step? The first step is to go to the person just you and to point out the fault now i think that this is oftentimes where we make the wrong turn in conflicts isn't it because when there is a conflict most of us we don't go to the right person right we either go underground and inside of ourselves or we go to someone else don't we and when we go to someone else Oftentimes, that's what ends up blowing up the conflict even more, isn't it? And this passage, it doesn't say, um, you know, in this moment, go to the person with a laundry list of other issues that, you know, sort of cause more and more of a separation. It says, go and point out the fault. Only take the issue at hand. The scriptures couldn't be clearer. So when you and I are in a conflict with another person, the first step only includes two people. It includes me, and it includes you. It includes me, and it includes you. If you are in a conflict with another person, it includes you and that other person and no one else. The scriptures go on, and they say, if they listen to you. So if after the first step, if they listen to you, You've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So how do you know when you're supposed to move to step two? If step one doesn't work, right? That's when you know. If you approach the person with love and with grace and with truth and there is still a separation, there is still a conflict, then you find another wise person that can help you. So how do you know who to take with you? Well, Jesus says that the role of that person in the scriptures, it says here that their role is to establish testimony. The scriptures don't say, like, go out and find your best buddy that you know will for sure be on your side of the conflict. The scriptures don't say, like, go find the person that you gossiped to about this situation and ask them to come with you. They say it needs to be a person or two or three that are good listeners. They're capable of establishing testimony. That's what that means. They're a good listener. They have this unique ability to listen with one ear to what's happening in the room. They're able to hear what's being said. And with the other ear, they can listen to what God is saying so that they can help to restore the relationship. And this can be a tremendous gift if the right person is invited into the situation. Because sometimes it takes another person or two to help us hear what we're saying to one another. Sometimes our hurt makes it so difficult to hear, doesn't it? And sometimes we need another person to ask insightful questions to help in moving to hurt people that oftentimes can't see straight in the middle of a conflict to help them move towards restoration and reconciliation. So step one just includes me and you. Step two includes me and you and no more than a few. Step two includes me and you and no more than a few. Now the passage goes on in verse 17. It says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So if step two does not work, that's when you go to the church. And the goal of that is to seek godly leadership to help facilitate a hopeful reconciliation. And Jesus says quite clearly that if you get to this step, if you've gone through step one and that didn't work, you went through step two and that didn't work, and you find yourself at step three, and there is no desire for the conflict to be restored by both parties, and there is a a blatant resistance, either on both parts or at least on one part, then the scriptures say treat them, As what? A pagan and a tax collector. Now this is is pretty strong counsel here from Jesus, right? I mean, what does that mean? What does it mean that that we should treat them as a pagan or a tax collector? You see, to be treated as, as a pagan or a tax collector, it's important that we understand the context in which Jesus is sharing this teaching with the disciples. You see, to be treated as a a pagan or a tax collector, it doesn't refer to excommunication here. It doesn't refer to public humiliation on the part of the church. In fact, I have a question for you. Who is it that Jesus spent significant time with throughout his ministry? Pagans and tax collectors, right? He even made one of them a disciple. The disciple Matthew who is ironically writing this very letter on how to restore conflict. Do you know what he did before he met Jesus? He was a pagan and a tax collector. This passage does not say anything about the removal of love or the removal of grace from this person's life. In fact, I love how the message version of the Bible translates this verse. It says, If he won't listen to the church... If the person won't listen to the church, you've done step one, you've done step two, you're at step three, and he still won't listen to the church. This passage says, well, you'll have to start all over from scratch, confront him with the need for repentance, and offer again God's forgiving love. Nowhere in the Matthew 18 process of conflict resolution does love leave the equation. So the third step, after me and you, and me and you, and no more than a few, the third step is me and you, we go to a pew. Okay. Now, friends, you got to give me a little bit of credit here, okay? I wanted to make it rhyme. I wanted to help us all remember, okay? I know it's cheesy. Jarrett asked me, please, babe, you don't want to do this to yourself The pew, right? It's good, okay? (laughs) Me and you, we go to a pew. The passage goes on, verse 18. It says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything that you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with you. Jesus, who is sharing this teaching with his disciples, he literally declares that the words that we share with one another on earth, that they literally have eternal consequence. That when we choose to resolve and agree with one another, that it sends God into action. Isn't that amazing? That God, he so longs, the heart of God so longs to see us in agreement with one another. He so longs to see us at peace with one another. He so longs to see broken relationships restored with one another, that when he sees it, the scriptures say that it causes the prayers that we pray to be answered. I I think that a lot of people have taken this verse out of context. And I think they've taught it only to mean that when, when two people get together and they pray together, that that's when God answers prayers. And I don't I don't actually believe that that is an accurate teaching of this passage. Because we have to think about the context in which this verse is being shared. We have to think about the context in which Jesus is sharing this with his disciples. He is just teaching them about how to be restored to one another. He's teaching them how to be reconciled with one another. The context here is when two people are resolved that when two people do the hard work to speak the truth, that when two people are willing to come to one another to own their faults, when two people are willing to seek forgiveness, when they are willing to let the dark be cast out by the light, when they're willing to be humble, when they're willing to say words like, I'm so sorry. I I am so unbelievably sorry. I've hurt you. I was wrong. I know that I wounded you. I know that I, I caused pain. I know that I created separation in our relationship." You see, when two, people, when two people are willing to come together and they're willing to be restored and they're willing to be reconciled, that, that is when the heart of God is moved. That is when God is put into a posture of unbelievable action because that's what's central to the heart of the gospel, friends. That is the story of the gospel. That is the story of reconciliation. That therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. That's what we just saw in Marcus's story. That all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. He does not have a list of your sins. He has committed us, the scriptures say, to the message of reconciliation. And that is I mean, I don't know what else can give you more hope. Isn't that unbelievable what God has done for us? He has committed us, his children that he loves, to the message of reconciliation. If you're wondering, if you're wondering, like, what should I do with my life? Like, what should my mission be about? It should be about extending the message of reconciliation. There is no greater thing that you can do with your life then extend the power of reconciliation through a relationship with Jesus. Everywhere you go, because of what Jesus did on the cross, and friends, if we are not doing this, if we are not tasting the power that comes from the unbelievable rush of extending and receiving reconciliation, we are missing out. We are missing out on what is so central and so beautiful about the gospel of Jesus. Because God settled the relationship between us and him. And then he called us to settle our relationship with one another. We, we, God's children, we are Christ's representatives. And I believe that he wants us to make things right with one another. But as I look around, I see a whole lot of hot messes of conflict. It is unbelievable to me. It is unbelievable to me how the body of Christ continues to get this so backwards. We have been reconciled. We have been restored. And when we don't handle conflict the way that Jesus instructs us to handle it, we don't just hurt the other person. We don't just hurt ourselves. We hurt the heart of God. We hurt the heart of God. And you can't have true peace with lies and pretense that stay in the dark. Reconciliation happens when conflict is exposed in a mature and loving way to the light. Unresolved conflicts, I believe, are one of the greatest tensions in Christians' lives today. And most of us, when we get into them, we want to get out of them as quickly as we can, don't we? We don't know what to do with them. Instead of risking any more broken relationships, we prefer to just sort of ignore the difficult issue and settle for this sort of like false peace, and we hope against hope that it'll just sort of like go away eventually, don't we? A few months ago, um, I picked up Elijah from kindergarten after school one day, and uh, he jumped into the car, and I said, hey, buddy, how you doing? You know, how was your day? He goes, oh, uh, it was okay, Mom. And I could sort of tell by his answer that he was a bit discouraged, and maybe something happened at school that day. And so we started talking about a few other things, and then I came back around to it. I was like, hey, buddy, you know, when I, when I asked you about how school was today, it seemed like... Maybe something happened. Do you, want to, do you want to tell me about it? He said, well, Mom, I had to go to the Peace pole today. Now, you're probably all wondering, what is the Peace Pool? And in our family, we had talked about this before. Elijah had told us that his teacher, Miss Goldstein, his kindergarten teacher, had taught the students that when they have a conflict, with one another, that they are to go to the peace pool in their classroom and they're to work out their conflict. Essentially, she just sort of had created this space in the classroom, like by a little pole, um, where they were supposed to go and to work out their conflict. Brilliant, right? I mean, brilliant kindergarten teacher. And, you know, there were all sorts of zones to be able to tell whether you needed to go to the peace pool, okay? So she had taught them, you know, if you find yourself in the escape zone, meaning, you know, you just want to deny that anything happened, and you start blaming somebody else for what happened, or or you want to run away from the issue, well, then, you know, that might be a sign. If you're in that zone, you might need to go to the peace pool, or she taught them about the attack zone, you know, and so if you find yourself in the attack zone, and you know, maybe you were mean to somebody on the playground or, you know, maybe you said, you know, some mean things behind one of the other kids' backs, you know, and, and you caused a fight. Maybe if you're in that zone, well, then maybe you need to go to the Peace pole. And if you don't go to the Peace pole, you might get on a slippery slope, okay? And so Miss Goldstein had taught them all about this and, and she had taught them that it is at the Peace pole where they get to the work it out zone. And at the Peace pole, you sort of can talk it out. And you can can get help from the teacher if you need it. And hopefully at the Peace Pole, you can apologize and you can, you know, own what you did. and You can give a hug and you can move on. So on this day, um, Elijah, you know, hops into the car and says, you know, Mom, I had to go to the Peace Pole today. And and I asked him, I asked his permission, uh, if I could share this story with you all. Um, He wanted to make sure that I told you that this was the first time he had to go to the Peace Pole and the only time, he had to go to the peace poll. Um, he was very adamant about that. And I'm very glad there's not a pride poll yet in his uh, kindergarten. Um, and he and this other boy in his class, they got into a disagreement about what they were going to play at recess. And Elijah, he wanted to play spies at recess. And this other boy, he wanted to play Batman at recess. And you can sort of see how this could become very heated with one another, right? Um, and so um, they ended up having to go and work it out at the peace pool. And so I asked Elijah, I was like, Elijah, you know, what happened? And he said, well, Mom, at first I was really mad because he made me feel bad. And he said that, that he didn't like my game and that, you know, um, I, it was a stupid game and he made me feel bad. And, and so, you know, it, it just it made me not want to play with him. I said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, I wanted to say something really mean back to him, but I didn't, to which I began to explain to him, you know, he's probably like his father and he suppresses things. Um, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. Um, but we t- he said, you know, we, we got to the peace pole and we talked it out, and I forgave him for saying something mean to me. And I asked for his forgiveness because I wasn't willing to play his game. And then we forgave one another. And so said, well, Elijah, like, you know, how long were you at the peace pool? Like, how long does this take, you know, this whole thing in, in the classroom? Like, how long were you there? He said, I don't know. Like, I was there for like a minute maybe. <laughs> and I literally thought about asking Elijah to come and give the message this weekend. How is it? How is it that a couple of six-year-olds can get this so right in a minute and we keep making the same mistakes? The mark of a transforming Christian community that is living in the ways of Jesus is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of restoration and reconciliation the mark of a transforming Christian community that is living in the ways of Jesus. They are going to have conflict. In this world, you will have trouble. What we need to know is that the mark of a transforming community is the presence of restoration and reconciliation. And friends, we have, we have the ultimate peace pole, don't we? We have the ultimate peace pole. The cross that Jesus died on is literally what allows us to live at peace with one another. And we need to understand that when we come here and when we worship and when we are unreconciled with one another, it's literally as if we are denying the power that exists in the ultimate peace pole of the cross when we come here and and we try to worship our Lord and we try to engage with him and then we're unreconciled in other relationships, it's as if we are saying, I just don't know if the cross has enough power to restore this relationship in my world. Jesus himself said, if you are offering your gift at the altar, meaning if you are at the altar and you are worshiping the Father and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift right there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your gift. One translation of that verse says that literally you should leave immediately. That if you come to worship the Lord and you realize you are unreconciled with another member of the body or another person, that you should literally leave immediately so that you can go experience and taste all that comes from reconciliation and restoration. And so tonight, I want to give us the opportunity, the Lord, I don't want to give you the opportunity, the Lord wants to give you the opportunity to go to the ultimate peace poll tonight. I think it's lucky for us that Soul City has many obstructed poles all throughout this uh, auditorium. And you know, when Jesus hung on the cross, when he sacrificed himself on the ultimate peace pole, the words that he said to the Father, the words that he said to the Father on our behalf was, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they've done. And the words that break conflict, the words that break conflict are the words, forgive me. the words that break the conflict that you are in in your life, regardless of the size of the conflict, are the words, forgive me. Those two words have unbelievable power, unbelievable power to bring hope, to bring restoration, to bring freedom, and to bring peace. And I wanna give us an opportunity to say them tonight. And some of you, you know that what you need to do over the next few moments is you need to take your phone out. You need to start writing a text message. You need to set up an appointment this week. You need to get eyeball to eyeball with another person. And you need to be about the message of reconciliation. Some of you, the real honest truth of what you need to do, you know it so clearly. In fact, the last 10 minutes of my message, you haven't even heard a word that I've said. The only thing that's been on your mind is the name of a person in their face. And you know the greatest thing that you can do tonight is just sort of, in a moment, pick up your things, walk out, leave immediately, so that you can go and be restored. And the rest of us, what we're going to do is, there's a card in front of you. It says, "Forgive me. I'd love for you to grab it and hold on to it for a moment." And I want to give you the opportunity over the next few moments, to extend these two words to someone, to write a note write a plan to figure out how you are going to move forward so that you can be about the ministry of reconciliation and restoration a couple weeks ago I was uh, with a dear friend of mine we hadn't connected for a little while and um, I wouldn't say that we were necessarily in a conflict but we had sort of allowed um, just some time to go we hadn't connected with one another. And we found ourselves, you know, sitting in a restaurant and having dinner with one another. And the Lord led us in our conversation to be able to say, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry I sort of assumed some things or right? I didn't say some things that I wish I would have said. Will you forgive me? Do you know what happened as a result of that? That friendship was strengthened. More freedom was brought into that relationship. And so many of us, we fear saying those words. We fear, we think that we're going to lose something if we say the words, forgive me. Friends, if you say those words, you are going to gain an unbelievable freedom. You are going to live in truth and the light and you are going to experience love. Some of you, you know that your tendency when it comes to conflict, is to retreat. And right now, I challenge you on this card to engage. Don't retreat. Don't pull back. Engage. Some of you, your tendency is to attack. And you're thinking, oh, this is good. I am glad she has given me a chance to write out how I really feel. This is an opportunity for you to choose humility. Some of you, your tendency is to suppress. And this is an opportunity for you to let a grudge be gone. So I'm going to ask you to be courageous over the next few moments. To step in to communicating the words, forgive me. We pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for the truth, for the hope, for the possibility of restoration and reconciliation. God, I thank you that when we hunger for restoration, that when we choose to revoke any power that could come from seeking revenge, God, that when we choose to pursue you and to pursue your goodness and your forgiveness, God, I thank you. I thank you that you usher in restoration and reconciliation you usher in hope you usher in love and you usher in forgiveness so God I pray that this would be a sacred space right now I pray that this would be holy ground I pray that in this room we would experience the power that comes from the ministry of reconciliation God we love you And we thank you that it is because of Jesus and because of what Jesus did on the cross that we are able to offer reconciliation to one another, God, because we have been reconciled to the Father. We have been saved and we have been redeemed and we have been given a second chance. And so, God, I pray that you would give us the courage to offer the same. We love you and we thank you for the price that was paid on the cross. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray.